What we discovered at the time was that most of the adaptations that older people made was, was in their muscle. Their muscle was highly responsive to the exercise. So that set us off kind of looking at how increased physical activity might alter many of the aspects that we think about of aging. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gail Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, how to live a longer, healthier life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. William Evans. Dr. Evans is an adjunct professor of human nutrition at the University of California, Berkeley, and an adjunct professor of medicine in the geriatrics program at Duke University. Dr. Evans' research examines the functional and metabolic consequences of physical activity in elderly people, as well as how dietary protein and energy needs change with advancing age. He was the first to describe the condition called sarcopenia, the age-related loss of muscle mass and strength. His research also includes the connection between sarcopenia and biomarkers like decreased testosterone, estrogen, and growth hormone production, increasing insulin resistance, and poor diet. Welcome, Dr. Evans. Yeah, it's great, great to be with you. Welcome, Dr. Evans. Thank you. So, Dr. Evans, can you start by walking us through kind of your career path and how you ended up focusing on aging? Sure. So my undergraduate, or my undergraduate degree uh, is in zoology. My graduate degree is in human physiology or exercise physiology. And I came to Boston and took a faculty position at Boston University. At the same time, I was a postdoctoral trainee, trainee at MIT, where I worked in Dr. Vernon Young's lab. And, and Dr. Young was uh, a scientist who, who really kind of helped to define dietary protein and amino acid requirements. Around 1982, the, the Tufts University received um, funding from the USDA to create a brand new research institute called the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging. The original director of, that la of the whole facility was Dr. Hamish Monroe, eminent scientist from MIT. And I was very lucky. He asked me to head up the first, essentially one of the first labs at the center. My lab was the human physiology lab, and I had never really done any research in aging. And, and so I was a little concerned, but the more I looked into it and the more I talked to many of my colleagues, it was clear that we could essentially apply many of the concepts that we knew about exercise and training to old people. It had never really been done before. And so my laboratory was the first to show that um, old people were remarkably responsive to increased levels of physical activity. Before I started doing um, my research, there was this notion that at some age, it might be more harmful for, for people to exercise than it would benefit. And so we attempted just to dispel that, that notion. Some of the first studies that we did, we looked at aerobic exercise as because that was the type of exercise that most um, health practitioners recommended. And we were able to demonstrate that if the intensity is matched between old and young people, the response is exactly the same. That is, we showed that the absolute improvements in maximal aerobic capacity between a group of older and younger people was exactly the same. And, and what that meant, because older people started out at a lower aerobic capacity, so what we were interested in was to address the question 
does aging in some way prevent the, the adaptation that we make to regular aerobic exercise? And so we matched the amount, the intensity, the frequency, and the duration of the exercise that they did. And we found that the absolute gains in maximal aerobic capacity were exactly the same between a group of healthy older and healthy younger people. And what that meant was that the relative improvement in our older subjects was 20% in three months. Essentially, they had regained the fitness that they had lost in the previous 30 or 40 years in three months of, of exercise. So wow. It was a pretty astonishing finding. And, and what, we, what we did at the time, we collected muscle biopsy samples to look at how well the muscle adapted. And, and what we discovered at the time was that most of the adaptations that older people made was, was in their muscle. Their muscle was highly responsive to the exercise. So um, that set us off kind of looking at how increased physical activity might alter many of the aspects that we think about of aging. And um, I was fortunate to have as a, as a trainee, a physician named Dr. Walter Frontera, and he was a medical specialty was physical medicine. So we decided to look at what we call resistance exercise training, because if you look at, at the literature at the time, the major deficit that we all suffer as we grow older is weakness. And weakness limits many aspects of everyday function. So we took, again, a group of healthy older men and, and then put them through a high-intensity resistance exercise program. Again, it's something that had not been done before, again, because the thought was that high-intensity exercise, especially weightlifting, would be somehow harmful. And we showed that these men increased their strength by 100 to 200% in, in wow. three months. And increase the size of their muscles. That had also not been seen before. We, we used CT scans to look at the, the size of their muscles before and after. And, and it was uh, really astonishing, the amount of change that we saw. And that got a lot of people's attention. I was then fortunate to have another physician join my group. She was a geriatrician. And Dr. Maria Fiatteroni. And so we were aligned at the time with Harvard, and the teaching nursing home at Harvard is called the Hebrew Rehab Center. And so we decided that we would uh, try and see if high-intensity resistance training worked in very old people. So I remember the first time we went to the Hebrew Rehab Center, and we told them that we wanted to examine the effects of exercise on some of their residents. And they thought we wanted to have everybody sit around in chairs and kind of wave their arms a little <laughs> bit. What, what you see in many um, nursing homes and long-term care facilities even now. And we said, no, we want them to lift weights. <laughs> and uh, they were very skeptical. <laughs> They gave us really permission to do a kind of a pilot study. And uh, Maria recruited 10 subjects. Average age was 91 years old. So these were very old, very frail people that had multiple chronic diseases. And uh, again, what we, we did was we had them exercise at 80% of their, what we call the one repetition maximum. That's the maximum amount of weight that they can lift one single time. And, and what we discovered is that, again, we were able to see a 100 to 200% increase in strength in these very, very old subjects. We published that paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, got a lot of attention, even a uh, cartoon in Sports Illustrated of all places when they did a little feature on our, on our study. We then took the data um, from that study, wrote a, a 
grant application to National Institutes of Health. They funded a much, much larger study in, in the nursing home where we examined the interaction between weightlifting and uh, nutritional supplement. And, and so we had four groups. We had a group that lifted weights and received a placebo drink, a group that lifted weights, received a, a nutritional supplement. In this case, it was um, it's a, a drink very much like Ensure, one that you can find in, in, the, in the grocery stores. And, and then we had a group that didn't exercise and received the supplement and a group that didn't exercise and received the placebo. Because surprisingly, there were some people that looked at our initial paper in JAMA and said, well, you know, just getting them out of their rooms and having them do anything is going to increase their strength. And so we had to have an attention control. And, and this, this study was in 100 of the residents. So it was a big study. We ultimately published the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it got a, a lot of attention. And we were able to show a, a number of things with that. But, but importantly, the, the increases in strength were associated with better walking speed, better ability to climb stairs, better balance. And we measured spontaneous activity. That is, we put an activity monitor on their bodies and just measured how often they got up and moved around. And um, not so surprisingly, the, the, the individuals who got s stronger increased their spontaneous activity. And, and in this study, our oldest um, subject was 98 years old. Wow. And, and, and again, these were patients subjects that had multiple chronic diseases, and, and, and which is typical of most nursing homes. And it really also importantly, the, the subjects who exercised uh, as, as opposed to the subjects who got an, the same amount of attention but didn't exercise uh, showed far less depression. So we measured depressive symptoms. And, and that was also affected by, by the exercise. And so I, I think that those studies uh, resulted in a, a tremendous interest now because we were able to show that for the first time, this process that we all thought was inevitable and unchangeable, which is the age-related loss of strength and, and muscle, is in fact treatable. And the treatment is actually inexpensive and safe. So, so uh, much of our research has attempted to kind of look at that. We, at, at Tufts, we did another study with a, a graduate student of mine who later was a, a postdoc of mine. Her name was Miriam Nelson. And we, we, again, we had an NIH grant to look at postmenopausal women doing strength training, again, compared to just sedentary control. And we found, again, a, a remarkable increase, increase in bone density. In, in spine and total body. And so we were the first to show that that weightlifting exercise in postmenopausal women was not only safe, but um, really reduced uh, greatly the risk of, of a hip fracture or any bone fracture. So, and so those were some of the real seminal studies, I think, that, that caused a lot of people to now think about what are the, the best ways to sort of implement these these sorts of studies that we, we now know can um, affect the way people age, I think. So very interesting story, and uh, it's uh, exciting to learn about the history of uh, the development of uh, exercises and intervention to happen, I assume, much uh, before we knew about that, which is... Uh, Again, very exciting. Uh, Dr. Evans, I have a question to you about uh, becoming a scientist. When have you decided to become a scientist and what, uh, what was the reason for that? Oh, that's an interesting question. So my undergraduate major in, in college at the University of North Carolina was zoology. I was interested, interested in animals and animal behavior and I happened, when I graduated from University of North Carolina, 
At the time, I was potentially interested in going to graduate school in wildlife biology, but I happened to get drafted into the Army. And I was fortunate I didn't get sent to Vietnam because this was 1972. Okay. And, and I got sent to a place called the, Human, the, the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. And that was this uh, really remarkable place in Natick, Massachusetts, that examined how um, soldiers adapted to environmental extremes. And so we were studying um, the process of heat acclimation, how soldiers adapted to high altitude, how soldiers adapted to extreme amounts of cold. And I just thought it was incredibly fascinating. It was real. I thought this was great. And I happened just through a circumstance to find out about this laboratory at, at a place called Ball State University. At the time, it was the, the very best, maybe still is, exercise physiology lab in, in the world, headed by a guy named David Costell. And so I went out there and, and went to graduate school. And it was there, you know, it, it cost, David Costell was measuring the very best track and field athletes in the world. We, we did a study uh, interesting study to look at elite long-distance runners. And the question was, what made these long-distance runners better than everybody else? Better than uh, runners who may be just as well-trained, maybe has the same aerobic capacity. What was it about them? And we measured, for example, we measured the aerobic capacity of Steve Prefontaine. I don't know if you know that name. I don't Steve Prefontaine at the time was the premier middle distance runner in the world. And unfortunately, he died in a tragic car accident because he had been drinking. But, but at the time, he had the highest aerobic capacity we'd ever measured. We measured Frank Shorter, who had won the Olympic gold medal in the marathon. And what we found, interestingly, is that these long distance runners had a high percentage of what we call slow twitch type one muscle fibers are also called fatigue resistant fibers. And so they were able to run a very long distance without becoming fatigued, without their muscles becoming fatigued. Whereas world-class sprinters have a high amount of what we call fast fibers. And the best analogy that I have is if you've ever eaten a duck, you know that the breast muscle of a duck is very dark and oily. And that's a reflection of the metabolic qualities of the duck because it, it can fly for thousands of miles without becoming fatigued. And those are the type one slow fibers that rely on fat as its major fuel source. Whereas, you know, a chicken it's not known for its endurance qualities. And the, the breast muscle of a chicken can, you know, is all white. It's all these fast switch fibers. And so we have kind of a mixture of fast and slow fibers. It's the, the amount that you have is really a gift from your mom and dad. So we were able to show that these long distance runners had extremely high amounts of slow fibers, 80 percent plus, which is very unusual. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that aging results in a loss of the so-called type two or fast fibers. Fast switch fibers contract with greater force. And so typically weightlifters and bodybuilders have probably more fast fibers because they hypertrophy to a greater extent. And as we grow older, we lose more of these fast fibers. And that also contributes to this reduction in strength that we all experience as we grow older. So I got interested in human physiology because I got drafted. I got sent to a lab that I, I was just incredibly fascinated with because of the kind of cutting edge research that they were doing on human performance. And I was lucky to, to land a faculty position in Boston and a training slot with a mentor at MIT 
and was able to kind of look at the combined interaction between nutrition and physiology. It's it's very interesting. And uh, by the way, we are now doing uh, having a research on uh, runners, similar to what you have done, but uh, looking at uh, blood biomarkers and the effect of if you compare uh, professional runners versus uh, uh, amateur runners that are running more than 10 hours a week or five hours a week or what we call the uh, average person that is not exercising at all and looking at the effect of that on uh, blood biomarkers, we, uh, what we found that uh, uh, running uh, uh, help you to optimize a lot of the markers that are uh, uh, good for, uh, for uh, physiology or good for uh, metabolism, uh, glucose and uh, LDL and other. But you can see some other markers such as, not surprisingly, like uh, creatine kinase that's going up, uh, cortisol is a bit higher, the stress hormone. Uh, so we, we are working on uh, publishing a paper about that. So it's very interesting that uh, what you've done, I don't know, a few decades ago still uh, is uh, very interesting for the scientific community. So it's, uh, it was great hearing about that. Yeah, in that study, they, they did a, a, brought in a huge number of physiologists, and, and there were some psychologists, psychiatrists as well. And what was interesting in talking to people like Shorter or, and Steve Prefontaine, they all said that there's a time in every race where it's really hard and it really hurts. And the thing that distinguishes them from people who are not as good as that, they really look forward to that part of the race <laughs> is that they know that when they're feeling bad and it hurts, it's hurting everybody. And that's the, that's the time. That's the place where you become competitive. So interesting of all of just hearing all of your research background that, I mean, for me is kind of still at the beginning of my career, I take all of this knowledge like for granted i assume it's always been there <laughs> <laughs> well it's, it, it evolves that's for sure it, you know as as you may have mentioned i was the first to describe this condition called sarcopenia and um the, the word was coined by by irv rosenberg who was the, the the director of the nutrition center after hamish monroe left because we, we had always observed that muscles in older people were smaller than muscles in, in younger people. And so the, the word sarcopenia, that in, in the way that I described it, is the age-related loss of muscle mass. Now, what's interesting is that what's happened over the last 30 or so years is that the term sarcopenia has taken on a slightly different meaning. And that's because until recently, we've had no way to actually measure how much muscle someone has in their body. And you would think, well, how can that be? But if you think about it more carefully, the muscle mass as opposed to lean mass or fat-free mass it's a very specific part of the body that doesn't lend itself terribly well to, to measurement. And so what's happened in the scientific literature is very large, what we call cohort studies, have measured lean body mass and shown that the amount of lean body mass or even changes in lean body mass seem to be unrelated to changes in function or uh, risk of disability or even mortality, but changes in strength are much more associated with these outcomes. And so it's caused a lot of people, a lot of scientists to make the hypothesis that muscle mass then is not very important because lean body mass is not associated with these outcomes. And I have always thought that that's not true because lean body mass is not a measure of muscle mass. Muscle is only a small component or a component of lean mass. Lean mass can, you know, is also your total body water. It's viscera. It's, it's everything else. And so um, recently, my colleague, Dr. Mark Hellerstein at the University of California, Berkeley, 
uh, invented a brand new way to measure how much muscle mass you have in your body. And it turns out it's a, it's a pretty straightforward way. Dr. Hellerstein and I have always used for, throughout our careers what are called stable isotope tracers to, to map where and how a metabolite might be uh, used in the body. And so it turns out that all of the creatine, you know, you've heard about creatine, all the creatine in your body is in muscle. And, and in fact, muscle doesn't make creatine. It's made by the liver and the kidney. It's actively taken up by the muscle. So our idea was you give someone a small amount of labeled, what we call deuterated creatine, they swallow it, it gets taken up into all muscle. And then the beauty of the system is that creatine is converted into another compound called creatinine, which is not used by the body, and then lost in urine. So our idea was that you give someone a little capsule, you take a urine sample later on, and you know exactly how much muscle someone has. And it works better than we could have ever hoped. It, it's, it's remarkable. And so now we've included this method into a couple of very large cohort studies and looking at aging specifically. And what we've discovered, as I predicted many years ago, is that muscle actually is highly related to outcomes. And if you use lean body mass measured by what's called dual X-ray absorptiometry, which is the, the most common way to measure lean body mass, it's not related to outcomes at all. But muscle mass is strongly related to things like how fast you walk. It's related to grip strength. It's related to fracture risk. In fact, it, it appears that in very old people, muscle mass is more strongly related to risk of a hip fracture than is their bone density. Mm. And, and that's because if you think about it, in very old people, bone density is, is, is low, but muscle mass is variable. And if you're at risk of falling down because you have low muscle mass, you're much more likely to fracture your hip. And we've also now shown that muscle mass is strongly related to mortality among old people in ways that lean body mass is not at all. So, so I think we're now um, entering a new era that we can focus much, much more directly on sarcopenia as muscle mass specifically, and then begin to examine perhaps what are some of the factors related to aging that affects muscle specifically, not lean mass, and what can we do about it? And obviously exercise is one, diet is another one. So there, there are a lot of ways maybe to affect muscle mass. And, and, and now we have a number of, of um, studies using this method in patients with cancer because loss of muscle mass in patients with cancer is, is also related to outcomes. In fact, it's an independent predictor of mortality among patients with cancer, irrespective of the type of cancer that they have. So I think that the method now, because it's pretty simple, patient simply swallows a capsule and produces a urine sample. And, and in fact, we, we just published paper, we had a, a big study funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where we validated our method in um, infants and children. And we found that in uh, premature infants, our smallest subject now was less than a kilogram in weight when we started. And um, found that we could measure growth and muscle accumulation in premature infants simply by taking urine from their diaper. So it's, it's completely non-invasive. And, and we're now uh, beginning to look at children who are malnourished in other parts of the world to look at potential feeding that, that might affect muscle specifically, which we think is probably a better biomarker for nutrition status than almost anything else we can measure. So, so it's led to a, a lot of uh, very interesting research projects for us. So, so a follow-up question. I know that there is some correlation between the level of uh, hormones, and specifically sex hormone, and the level of muscle mass. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, we know that testosterone <clears throat> is a um, 
powerfully anabolic hormone, and so is growth hormone. But but men generally, de- as you know, decrease their testosterone levels as they grow older. It's not universal. It's it's obviously it's called andropause, but it's very unlike menopause, which is kind of all women experience menopause. That's not always the case in men. It's an average decrease in testosterone levels, but that is associated with loss of muscle. So is growth hormone secretion, which is known to be reduced as we grow older. And then the other, you know, profoundly anabolic hormone that we we often don't think about as as anabolic is insulin. And um, insulin resistance itself has a major effect on the rate of muscle protein synthesis. So we did some studies a few years ago. I had a what's called a program project grant from the National Institutes of Health to look at the effects of bed rest in old people. And it was interesting. That's, a, that's another kind of evolution. When we first submitted the application, some of the reviewers thought, well, it's unethical to put old people to bed. I mean, how can you do that? <laughs> And, you know, we were able to, to demonstrate that bed rest is the number one therapy in the world. I mean, when people get sick, they go to bed. Yeah. When they're in yeah. hospitals, they go to bed. And we, we had no idea what the metabolic response to bed rest was in old people, the people that are most, most likely to go to bed for extended periods of time. So we did a study in which we took healthy old people and put them to bed for 10 days. And they were not, they were allowed to get out of bed in, in, the, in the morning just to toilet themselves. And, and then we looked at the responses. We fed them the, the recommended dietary allowance for protein, which is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And we gave them enough energy, enough calories just to maintain their weight. And what we discovered was that these healthy subjects lost more than a kilogram of lean mass from their legs. And never, again, not been seen before. In, in fact, if you put young people to bed for 30 days, in studies funded by NASA, you, in fact, see about four to 500 grams of loss of muscle. So old people lose three times as much muscle in a third of the period of time as, as young people. And so, and so the question is, you know, the metabolic question is, why is that? Why do they lose so much more muscle? Well, partly it's related to these anabolic factors. Partly it's related to inadequate dietary protein intake, because as we grow older, we've been able to demonstrate old people need more protein in their diet. But I think the primary reason is that old people get insulin resistant when they when they go to bed. And this insulin resistance can lead to diabetes, risk of diabetes, but it also leads to a greatly reduced efficiency of making new proteins in muscle. And and it's this and we were able to show we measured muscle protein synthesis and able to show a, a a 40 to 50% reduction in the rate of muscle protein synthesis that, that again, is far greater than, than anything that we've seen in young people. And so, you know, these responses to, between young and old people are quite interesting to, to begin to assess because it really gets you back to some of the fundamental um, questions about what is aging and what are things that we can do something about and what are things that we may not be able to do very much about. And what is the difference between male and female? I assume that you discuss more males. So yeah, no, we had uh, equal number of men and women, and we saw no differences between men and women in, in that study. So it, it probably was the insulin resistance. We did measure insulin resistance in, in our subjects, and we saw both hepatic insulin resistance and, um, and uh insulin resistance in their muscles. So the liver also becomes somewhat insulin resistant, which means mm-hmm. that it overproduces glucose and drives down fatty acid oxidation, which may also increase the amount of fat mm-hmm. in the body and specifically in muscle. 
So I think insulin resistance is, is, is causing a lot of changes that occur quite rapidly. That's interesting. I think a good segue to something else that I've had the benefit of watching you talk through slides on, which is the inflammation of chronic disease that also can lead to a loss in muscle mass for older people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's also an area of tremendous interest right now is something that's been, maybe you've, you've had this discussion with other guests, is that there is this, just as there is a so-called andropause, there is a, a, a term called inflammaging. That is, we, we tend to see increased markers of inflammation as we grow older. And the people that have the highest markers of inflammation are the ones that become the most frail. And, and so the question has always been, what is that? Is that an aging thing? There are many people who believe that it's, it's just undiagnosed chronic diseases because we know that chronic diseases, diabetes, for example, hypertension, heart disease, are also associated with inflammation. So there's been a, a school of thought that this in, in inflammation is results from some undiagnosed problem, but it, it, it may, probably isn't that. And there are a lot of theories about why that is. Uh, one of them is, is just simply uh, accumulation of fat. We know that fat in the liver hepatic steatosis increases with aging, and that is associated with production of inflammatory factors. There's also some interesting theories about the gut, and, and in old people, there may be some leakage from the gut into the circulation that also results in inflammation, but irrespective of the cause, inflammation itself causes muscle insulin resistance. So there's a direct effect of inflammatory factors right on the muscle. And, and we know that if you, if you um, take anti-inflammatory factors or you reduce the inflammation, you may be able to preserve that insulin resistance um, or insulin sensitivity. So I think there's a lot of very interesting research that's going on right now to understand the origin of the, of the inflammation what the metabolic effects of the inflammation are and, and maybe ways of preventing that. And, and I mean, obviously one of the ways of doing that is, is caloric restriction, which we know has an effect of reducing inflammation in animals. I'm not so sure that we know that that's true in human beings, but, but certainly in animals, we get a re reduction in inflammation with long-term caloric restriction and a reduce in the turnover of proteins. So, so follow up to uh, this point about uh, caloric restriction, what are the interventions that uh, uh, you can recommend to our audience in order to maintain their muscle mass in younger age, uh, middle age, and old age that uh, will allow them to live longer, better life? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, to start with, we maybe understand maybe what the changing dietary needs are for old people. Obviously, one big one is we have a reduce, reduction in the amount of calories that we need, for sure. At the same time, we have an increase in, the, in our need for protein. And the reason for that, as you had alluded to, is, is that this reduction in growth hormone and testosterone and, to some extent, estradiol, reduce the efficiency of protein synthesis and leads to what some people call anabolic resistance. That is, you give the same amount of protein to old and young people. Young people mount a far greater increase in rates of synthesis. So maintaining body weight is, is really important. <clears throat> and increasing dietary protein intake over time is also important. And it, it's difficult in many cases, and, and some amount of protein supplementation might be of some benefit particularly in very high quality proteins. Uh, you know, we know that proteins that are rich in essential amino acids are far more efficient at stimulating muscle protein synthesis and helping to maintain muscle mass. 
We also did a, a study uh, some years ago funded by the National Institutes of Health. We wanted to ask the question, if you simply reduce dietary fat intake, because my hypothesis was we uh, increase or decrease our body fatness by the amount of fat that we eat. And so what we did was we took a group of older people that had uh, insulin resistance that were overweight or obese, and we put them on a 20% um, fat, 60% carbohydrate, and 20% protein. So essentially the, the diet was reduced, greatly reduced fat, increased protein, and, and greatly re increased carbohydrate intake. And we allowed them to eat that ad libitum. There was, they ate as much as they wanted to eat. We didn't have any restrictions. And we found that on the, the low-fat diet, our subjects lost about a pound a week and increased their insulin sensitivity increased, you know, uh, decreased their body fat levels. And so it, it had an overall very positive effect. And um, we weren't the only ones. There was a, it's a big study that you may be familiar with called the um, Women's Health Initiative Dietary Modification Trial. It's an interesting study in, in tens of thousands of older women, some of which were told to simply decrease their fat intake and increase their intake of um, whole grains and vegetables and fruits. And the other group, the control group, was simply given healthy diet information. And the women that, that reduced their fat intake lost weight, a uh, significant amount of weight. But even more importantly, as long as they maintain the lower fat diet, they maintain that lower uh, weight over six or seven years, which is really important. So I think that the, you know one of the most important dietary recommendations we can make is that a reduction in particularly saturated fat intake may have very long-term health consequences. An attempt to control your calorie intake by in decreasing your fat intake is, is, is much easier and eating high-quality protein. And, and so th those are some simple ones. And, and uh, you know, the the two supplements that I take are vitamin D and I take omega-3 fatty acids. Those, those are the two that I take. I've been thinking all of the sports nutrition mumbo jumbo that comes out. I would love to know how you feel about most of it <laughs> since I'm sure it's a phrase from some of your studies that have been taken and just, I don't know, bastardized. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's really astonishing what people can make money off of these days. <laughs> Because the internet, you know, if you do a, a, a search, you put in sport nutrition, you get thousands and thousands of pages of people selling you stuff. And, you know, most often what it is, is just they got some athlete to say, I, I took this. It's interesting. When I was in Boston, I was the nutrition and fitness consultant for the Boston Bruins ice hockey team and for the New England Patriots. And so I measured the body fat and fitness and power of the team and then made a lot of recommendations on diet, you know, and, and so it's just a matter of kind of studying what the physiology of, of the sport was <clears throat> for ice hockey players. They're exercising at an extremely high intensity of exercise. They're only on the ice for 60 seconds at a time. And so they use up their muscle glycogen stores pretty quickly and they weren't paying attention to that. And so, and, and huh, they were also losing seven or eight pounds of water in a game, even though wow. fluids were being forced on them. And so many of them, when they left, they would drink a lot of alcohol. And so we implemented when I was working with them, you know, that they had to drink a high carbohydrate supplement of, you know, with, with lots of fluid. For the Patriots, this kind of the opposite, the obesity was really the, the major issue for football players is maintaining weight. We had guys that were amazingly, you know, 35 to 40% fat, which, you know, for a 25 year old man shouldn't, shouldn't be. So we, we did some, some intervention to help to control body fatness, but that's always a problem. But yeah, there, there are a lot of 
things, and, and I always say if something sounds too good to be true, it, it is. There are very few real supplements that um, have stood the test of time. Maybe creatine supplements maybe is one that is safe and seems to be effective for some sports, but for the most part, it's paying attention to your training. Yep. Well, one more thing I want to touch on quickly is the you appeared before the Senate Special Committee on Aging yeah. um, on strategies to save on Medicare spending through preventing the chronic diseases that are associated with aging. Um, Dr. Sinclair that we talked to last week, he was saying that he's trying to petition for aging to become a disease that can be treated. So tell us a little bit more about what you spoke um, about that. Well, good luck with Dr. Sinclair's. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So my strategy was was to try to implement strategies that we know uh, improve health in older people, primarily exercise. When I was in Massachusetts, we started a program with the, with the Executive Office of, of, of Elder Affairs where we established walking clubs throughout the whole state of, of Massachusetts. And I would go out throughout the state and, and just talk to people about why they should start. And, and we had peer leaders who, that would, would lead the exercise. We had programs all over the state. Every, every fall, we had an event called the Governor's Club, Governor's Cup, uh, where we have thousands and thousands of older people would come for it. We had a, a 5K walk, a 5K run, and a, and a, and a one-mile walk started in the Boston Common. When I was at Penn State, we started again a, a study of a project, again with the Department of Aging, called Peer Exercise Program Promotes Independence, where we established walking clubs throughout the state using the already developed infrastructure. There are aging centers in every county. And, and our idea was to establish these exercise programs throughout the state and it become wildly popular, really popular. And so my advice to um, the Senate Select Committee was to use the already developed infrastructure that we have to deliver programs, especially exercise programs, to people that might not ever think about joining a fitness program. You know, that so many people, there's so many older people that the whole fitness industry has completely ignored and are left out. And so the idea was to use peers to help, you know, direct the program using weights and, and bands and walking and balance training. And, and it was really, really popular. But, you know, it needs a champion. You need someone to, to keep it going. We tried the same thing in Arkansas. And, and it was it, and when you implement them, people are extremely enthusiastic. So that was my, my recommendation is pay attention to prevention especially I think that aging is not a disease. And I, I disagree vehemently with Dr. Sinclair on that. I think that there are a lot of conditions that are associated with aging that we should focus much, much more on rather than trying to affect aging per se. And lastly here, physical activity, I've heard it cited before as being the best supplement that anyone could ever take, but it requires a lot more energy than just swallowing. I know that you have done some work with GlaxoSmithKline. Are there any pharmaceutical substitutions for physical activity? Do you think that that's feasible, something that we could see? Or are those benefits that you get from physical activity something that do actually require some physical effort? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a loaded question. I think that there, that there are and will be likely some so-called anabolic therapies that, that affect muscle primarily. The problem is, is that simply increasing protein synthesis and the amount of muscle may have relatively small effects. You know, when you go back and look at our exercise studies, we would get a, a 100 to 200% increase in strength, but a 10 to 15% increase in the amount of muscle. So what accounts for that difference? Mm. Well, it's the brain. The brain learns to 
to use muscles w way more efficiently. So exercise has a, a, a quite astonishing effects on a whole host of factors, not just that, your muscle, but obviously your cardiovascular system, your bones, your reproductive system, the production of oxygen radicals, you know. So there, there's so many potential things that exercise can do that a pill may help you. And maybe for some older people that are extremely frail, maybe it'll be of some benefit. You know, we know, for example, that giving drugs to postmenopausal women has some real effect on preventing the fracture. So there are some benefits to pharmaceutical approaches, but I don't think there'll be anything that will ever substitute for physical activity. Not the least of which is the number one thing to prevent um, Alzheimer's disease. The number one thing associated with Alzheimer's disease is physical activity. Good to know. And I think an important lesson or a message for a lot of people that would rather pop a pill to hear. All right. Well, wrapping up, what is one decision that you make each day that you could kind of share as a tip with our listeners? You already told us your supplement regimen. So thank you. But any <laughs> other nutrition or maybe your exercise routine? I, I, I'm very lucky. I live on a golf course, so I, I walk a lot, you know, when I, on the weekends, when I'm not working, you know, a round of golf is about eight miles and I carry my bag. I always, I have a treadmill at home. So, you know, in the last year and a half, I've been doing a lot of treadmill walking. I have bands at, at, you know, that these TheraBands that actually work pretty well at maintaining your strength. So I do some strength training. And so I'm lucky that I have my, my wife, she walks 10 miles every day. Wow. So she's, she's the one that kind of says, no, no, you, you can do it. You, you know, you need to do it. <laughs> so the, the, the thing that you need is your partner or your friend to be supportive. If you're doing it with somebody else, you're much more likely to do it. You know, you're much more likely to show up. And so that's the best recommendation I can make. That is impressive. 10 miles a day is serious. Yes, every day. <laughs> I've been married for 35 years and it's been every day. <laughs> well, good marriage advice too. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Evans, for joining us. Oh, I have learned a ton. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Gil. Thank you so much. And we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each week with all of you and leading scientists in the field. For more info, please go to www.insighttracker.com slash podcast. See you next time. Great. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.